Good morning, everyone. This is Lauren Gleason, and I'm excited to introduce Lobby's new podcast, The Biz, Sounds of Session Edition, episode one for this year. So as most of you know, March is Women's History Month, and so we wanted to highlight some of the strong women leading over at the Capitol. And so today I have with me Senator Sharon Hewitt. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Of course. We're so happy to have you. So Senator Hewitt represents District 1, which includes currently Orleans, Plaquemines, St. Bernard, and St. Tammany Parishes, and outside of your role as legislator, but before that, you had a career, before your career in politics, you are one of the first women executives in the oil and gas industry. And so would you mind giving us a little bit of that background and sort of what it looked like being a, a woman in a male-dominated field at that time? Well, it was uh, definitely a lot different than it is today, Lauren. Yeah. You know, I, I graduated from LSU in mechanical engineering, and, and I think I was the only female in my class. And oh, wow. so, you know, being the only female was something you just sort of get numb to and you get used to. Yeah. I went to work, you know, for Shell uh, in the upstream end of the business, so drilling and production business. And the training program back in the day was for every new engineer to spend their first year on a drilling rig. Wow. And the idea was kind of learning from the ground up. But the challenge, of course, was that they really weren't used to having women in the oil business. And so the rigs weren't set up to accommodate yeah. women. And so, you know, I stayed in, in a room with, you know, five other guys, triple <laughs> bunk beds, you know, had to figure out how to navigate, wow. you know, uh, men's locker rooms. Yeah. There were no <laughs> private bathroom facilities or private quarters at mm. all for women. And so, you know, I tell a lot of funny stories about the challenges with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't think of them so much as challenges at the time. I was sure. really thinking about it just as this is part of the job, part of the job. And I knew what I was getting into. And I knew that if I, um, you know, did my part and outworked everybody and was a team player, mm-hmm. that they would, you know, I would earn their respect over time. And I believe that I did. Wow. And, you know, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, I was managing a big part of Shell's uh, central deep water Gulf of Mexico business, billions of dollars in assets, hundreds of employees. And some of those guys on the rigs that gave me such a hard time at the beginning of my career mm. actually worked for me at the end of my career. Yeah. And so, you know, lots of first, yeah. but uh, such a great opportunity for me because I was working around some of the best leaders in the world. Mm. And um, not only did I learn from being around them, but, of course, I had many different assignments, leadership assignments. And so, you know, I had just great leadership training and business training and fiscal responsibility, negotiating. All of those things were part of my job. And uh, I left all that, a skyrocketing career when our sons were in first and third grade because our third grader was struggling with his multiplication tables. And I thought it was my fault as a mom. I was mm. traveling too much and juggling the, mm. the challenges that so many moms do and, yeah. and balancing work and family. And so, you know, instead of building those big offshore platforms, I started building playgrounds all over Slidell. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I love it. We built so many little tykes, you know, things. And I began raising money and putting in lots of STEM. I was all into STEM, as mm-hmm. you would imagine, from my background. Well, so. Sure. Brought lots of technology into the classrooms because I thought that was important for kids to have hands-on learning experiences. Yeah. And then after our sons finally graduated, you know, from college, you know, I began thinking about, well, what's next for me in my life? You know, you spend so much of your time 
serving your family and, and focused on your children, yeah. you know, I took a step back and said, well, what is it that's important to me? And what makes me happy? And how can I contribute? I can go back to work. I can keep doing volunteer work. But I felt this tremendous pull because I believed our state was heading in the wrong direction. Mm. And that if good people didn't run, that mm. we were never going to fix the problems of our state. Engineers are pretty good problem solvers. That's yeah. kind of in our DNA. And I thought the state had an infinite number of problems that needed to be solved. And so I ran for office. Um, no one in my family was ever in politics. It was not anything I ever thought about. Yeah. But I'm really enjoying my time here and think that I am making a difference. I love that. It's really neat to see sort of like the transition from your working life and how all of that really sort of prepared you in a way you never really thought for where you are today, which is so cool. And I think it's neat that you note that, you know, a lot of working moms do have that struggle of what is that like, you know. And so to uh, to see sort of how you transitioned and uh, gone through that so successfully, it's inspiring for other young women like myself who are sort of in that phase of life trying to figure out, okay, where do, where do we go next? So. And I, I appreciate think, you sharing that. And I think everyone's journey is different. You know, the opportunities that you have and the decisions that you make along the way, yeah. there will be these milestone opportunities and decisions for each of us. And, you know, there's no one right answer. Mm. You know, I think every every woman has to make their own decisions and their own choices. And, of course, it matters you know, about your husband and your family and what their needs are and their sure. opportunities as well. But um, I have no regrets. I am feel so blessed to have had, you know, three chapters in my life, the the professional chapter, the mm. stay-at-home mom chapter, and now, you know, community service, public service. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very exciting for me, and they've all been very fulfilling. I love that. Okay, so back to the politics for just a second. So we're about a month out from redistricting session. Can you walk us through uh, that special session and what it was like and a little bit how it ended? I know the governor has vetoed the congressional maps, so sort of what are you what are you looking at next? Well, the redistricting was a huge effort. You know, it wasn't just the three weeks we were in session, but it was the the three months plus leading up to it with, you know, a statewide road show with our entire committees. And and uh, it, it was so much more of a public process this year than mm. ever before. You know, there were apps online where anybody could draw a map. Everybody had access to the same data. I love that. And so, you know, it was a very open, transparent public process. Uh, we received lots and lots of input and different ideas. And there's really an infinite number of ways that you could draw a map. Mm. Um, but, but to me, you have to start with a set of principles. The legislature passed um, uh, an HCR that did establish what our principles would be. Mm-hmm. And then we basically drew maps and, and judged maps based on how well did they meet those principles and, of course, all the federal and state laws. You know, the, the, the big debate ended up being, you know, do we have enough majority-minority districts and how do you handle that issue? Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, some very good arguments on both sides of that. Uh, I do feel very confident that the maps that we drew do meet the Voting Rights Act. They meet all the other federal and state laws. They honor our redistricting principles. Mm-hmm. And so the governor sees it differently, and he chose to veto the, the congressional maps we actually drew two two maps, two bills, but they're exactly the same map. Mm. So a Senate bill that I authored, a House bill that the Speaker authored, uh, the governor vetoed both of those. Um, the law uh, has a process by which we can consider a veto override. Mm-hmm. The legislators right now are being asked the question, do you want to go into a veto override session? Right. My expectation is that the majority of them will say yes. Mm-hmm. 
If so, that will happen on March 30th. Um, state law says it's 40 days after we sign he die. Gotcha. So it'll be March 30th. Uh, it can last for no more than five days. Mm-hmm. And we will basically debate uh, Senate Bill 5. My bill will mm-hmm. start on the Senate side. HB 1 will start on the House side. They don't go to committee. The debate is on the floor. And it's really about do you agree with the governor's veto message or not? His message primarily said that he believes that we should have a second uh, majority-minority district. And so uh, the question for all of our members will be, do you agree with that or not? Mm. Of course, I don't and, and believe that, um, you know, that it matters where people live yeah. in redistricting. And so you know, to say a third of our people are a minority and so therefore we should have two out of six congressional districts um, is, a, is an easy talking point. But it does matter where people live. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to draw two districts that would function as a minority district, and the numbers just don't support it. Mm. And so I, I think we're on strong footing. Um, there will there have been several lawsuits filed since we got out of session mm-hmm. on the different maps, and so I'm sure all of this will be yeah. you know litigated and debated in court. Sure. Well, thank you for that update. I know lots of uh, exciting times to come with that. I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of redistricting, so everybody can keep a lookout for what's to come. Um, okay. Now, looking past redistricting, we are in the regular session for 2022. Would you mind sharing with us um, some of your legislative priorities for this session? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I will say uh, probably later this week, uh, you will hear what the uh, Republican legislative delegation's priorities are. We have been working on that. We're going to be coming out with a policy platform. Oh, great. First time, really, that I remember us ever doing yeah, that. Yeah, that sounds like a new thing. It's exciting to hear. It is a new thing, and it's going to be um, things that move the needle. Sure. So it's those areas, things that you would expect you know, smaller government, less Mm -hmm. regulation, uh, you know, uh, energy independence, Mm -hmm. better education, you know, things that you pro-life, things that you would expect to hear from a conservative legislature. And as, you know, chairwoman of the Senate caucus, Republican Mm -hmm. caucus, you know, that's something I've been working on. For me personally, um, (laughs) I I filed 23 bills. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) You got your hands full. I think I was sort of, you know, on a roll those three weeks in between the redistricting session and the regular session. But um, probably some of my my favorite bills uh, are focused on on two things. I I have a pro-life bill Mm -hmm. that basically makes it a criminal offense to um, get mail-order abortion pills. Mm. So President Biden in December made it easy to do that. Uh, we're closing that loophole and requiring a, a doctor's prescription okay. to do it. The health of the mother is very important, mm-hmm. and to be doing this just through mail order without any kind of medical advice, I think, yeah. is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have several education bills that I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. You know, based on my background, it, it's not a surprise that I'm a huge STEM advocate, yeah. have been working on STEM issues statewide uh, since getting elected. Uh, one of the bills that I have will make it um, uh, an option for students in high school to take computer coding in lieu of a foreign language class mm. and meet the graduation of TOPS requirements. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for me, computer coding is a foreign language. It may be to other people as well. Yeah. And so it's not to uh, replace com- uh, foreign language because there's a place for that. And for some students, it's very important. Sure. But for many students, computer coding is such a basic 
life skill and mm. something that all of our industries need. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a that's a great opportunity. I've also been very focused on um, literacy. Mm. And, you know, it was shocking to me a couple of years ago that we got a, a study that said 60% of our third graders were not reading yeah. on grade level. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And if you're not reading, you're not ready to learn. Yeah. And those students are being set up for failure mm. for the rest of their careers. And, and so... It's very important. We have to draw a line in the sand and say, Louisiana students are going to all be reading when they leave the third grade. Mm-hmm. And last year I passed a bill that established a K-2 through accountability system mm-hmm. to put a little teeth behind the importance of teaching children to read and providing um, uh, teacher training mm-hmm. and some interventions and lots of other resources right. to help uh, really do a better job in getting our kids to reading. This year, I have a bill that basically says, um, you know, if the school has had your child in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, and they're still not reading, Mm -hmm. then parents need a choice to be able to move their child into a different environment, Mm -hmm. a private school or a home school uh, based curriculum Mm -hmm. and take their state uh, MFP dollars, which is around fifty five hundred dollars a year Mm -hmm. from an education savings account and be able to put that towards a different education environment for their child. Uh, Because nobody wants to be stuck in a failing school or a school that's failing that child. And so I think this is great for parents. Yeah. Uh, they they love it. And, of course, we know it's going to be good for kids. Of course. We, we're huge proponents of ESAs over here at Lobby, and we think it really is the future of what education looks like. And it really does allow for that freedom and that choice for that family to know that that money really follows their child and it also belongs to that child, right? It doesn't belong to the system. It doesn't belong to the school. It really is for the education of that for that child, and it should be that family's decision. And so we are super excited about that bill that you have in particular. Um, Well, thank you for sharing all of that with us. My last question, what advice do you have to any woman who are wanting to break into politics or public service? What advice would you give them? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is, um, you know, don't let anybody ever steal your dream, Mm. right? You, You have the ability to do anything that anybody else can do. You know, another female or a male, I mean, if it's something that is in your heart, then just put together a plan and do the work to do it. And I think what's so exciting about the women that we have in our legislature, and of course we're very underrepresented, Mm. um, you know, we have more than 50% of of the residents in our state are females, and yet we don't have anywhere near 50% women in the legislature. And part of it is, you know, because, again, the challenge of being a part-time legislator and a full-time mom, you know, or maybe a part-time or full-time employee makes it very difficult. Um, But what's cool about the ladies in our legislature is I think you can find someone who you can relate to, yeah, right? We, we have women who have had children. Stephanie Hilferty yeah. has had children while serving the legislature. Right. You have cattle ranchers. You have engineers. Mm-hmm. You have teachers. You have different professional backgrounds, yeah. people that come from all walks of life, different parts of the, of the state. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a woman there that, you, that relates to you and resonates with you in terms of where you are in your journey. Yeah. And so I would just encourage anybody that's thinking about it uh, to get involved in, in, um, you know, in the political world, whether you're following legislation or getting involved in your school board or your city council, get involved 
uh, because it makes a difference. Mm. And then if you decide you want to take the plunge and run, reach out to someone who's already done it yeah. and get the advice. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. Yeah. You know, but women tend to hesitate, and we know this. We know that women have to be asked six or seven times mm-hmm. right before they decide to run. Mm. When you post a job, women, if they don't check every single box, they will not apply for the job. Mm. Men, if they meet, you know, a third of the boxes, yeah. they apply because they're just confident that yeah. they can yeah. manage the, to fake it or, or learn on the job yeah. the things that they don't, uh, the qualifications that they don't have. Women have to have the whole plan figured out. Yeah, much more hesitant to jump right in. <laughs> much more hesitant. And so, you know, don't do it. Jump in. I yeah. promise you it's not uh, that difficult. And we need the benefit of you know, diverse opinions. We're all a product of our own life's experiences, mm. and we need uh, diverse viewpoints. And women do that. Women bring a different viewpoint to the conversation. And uh, I'd be more than happy to help anyone or encourage anyone that's interested in running. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. This was a great conversation with Senator Sharon Hewitt. And just be on the lookout for our future Sounds of the Session episodes with the Biz Lobby podcast.